morning, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, that little one in the back, <laughs> 1 John chapter 3, we're going to be camped out there the whole time this morning for the whole hour and 15 minute sermon. Okay. We got laughs, we got amens, awesome, all right, that's good. Hey, um, Wes, will you take my slider and move it down just a little bit, I sound really loud. <laughs> I know I have a big mouth. All right, we okay there? Is that better? And then check the volume on the headset as well. Okay, check the volume on the headset and we should, we should be good to go. Does that sound all right? Okay, good, thank you. Well, this morning we're going to continue with our message series, A Change of Mind. And this third message is called A Change of Heart. A Change of Heart. It might be a little different than what you're thinking of, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Because I am my worst own critic. For those of you that know me well, you know that the first thing I look, to look for when things go wrong is what, what I did. Exactly back there when we had problems with the sound. Okay, I, I, I have an idea of what happened. But just so you guys won't get mad at anybody, I just say my fault. I don't know if it was or not, to be truly honest with you, but we'll go with it. Because I am the pastor here, so whatever goes wrong... It goes wrong under my leadership, so okay, fine, I did it, I've, my fault, right? Um, at, yeah, it's Shannon's fault. Um, but uh, with being my own worst critic, and really hard on my own performance and my own things, always asking if when something goes wrong and kind of putting that weight on myself, I need to do better, I have to get whatever it is we're doing moving forward, you know, I know how to take ownership for my stuff. I know how to um, kind of, I don't have any problems admitting when I make a mistake. Sometimes Susan might feel, tell you different, you know what I mean? But also with that, I think I'm also another extreme. I'm also the first one to kind of let myself off the hook, right? So if I tell myself if I set a goal and then I have these steps to meeting that goal and I get excited about that goal and I'm going to meet that goal, I'm going to do it, I'm going to make it happen, I'm going to take charge of my life and I'm going to make this change. See, when opposition comes, I'm the first one to cut myself a little slack. Because you never start diets on Monday. I mean, you never start them on Sunday. You always start them on Monday, right? And that Monday never really comes around because, you know, you get to Tuesday and, you know, I don't know about you. But one of my problems, I love to eat when I get stressed out. I love to. And I love to eat all kinds of things that I shouldn't eat when I get stressed out. So I'll let myself off the hook. I'll compromise all sorts of things. I'll put things off. So I'm really hard on myself. And then I give myself a lot of slack, a lot of grace. Kind of make excuses within my own personal dialogue. And maybe you have some of that going on. Maybe you're just the person that's always really super hard on yourself and you never give yourself any grace. You never give yourself any kind of room for growth. You just kind of demand that you perform at the Jesus level for your whole life. And when you make a mistake, it's like, oh no, the end of the world has taken place because you have blown it. You made a mistake and you just carry that weight around in what we call sometimes your emotional backpack. And your emotional backpack is loaded down with so much self-criticism and so much you should be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that that you're just kind of weighed down and you're 
whole life in all areas, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. You're just weighed down because you're constantly criticizing yourself. You're constantly condemning yourself. And to really kind of live, like, live life like that becomes very, very tiring. But you might be the person on the other end. You just never take responsibility for yourself. You, it's always your fault. <laughs> or when it is your fault, you're always trying to blame someone else. Because we do live in a blame culture. Blame started with our original ancestors of Adam and Eve. They blamed each other. They blamed Satan. They blamed God. They blamed, blame, 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 blame. And it's all over the place, right? And because, you know, whenever something goes wrong, who, who's to blame? Who's to blame? We're trying to create a culture around here among our leaders at the church that when something goes wrong, it's a we, not a me or a you, right? So when something goes wrong here at church, we're in it as a team. And we're not going to run around and say who did this or who did that. We'll just say we need to do better, right? We need to do better as a church. We love to say we around here. And so in the spirit of this, and thinking about these two extremes of always kind of overcritical of yourself or always letting yourself off the hook. I want to talk to you this morning and move through this chapter of Scripture in a way that I believe will help us gain victory over self-condemnation without giving yourself permission to sin, right? Because we live in this kind of culture and we struggle internally when we look and we say, man, I have this going on in my life. And you name the sin that you struggle with, right? Um, whatever really tempts you, whatever seems to derail you from making progress in life, whatever that is, I want to bring that to the forefront of your attention right now. And I want you to think about that one or two things that seems to kind of trip you up continually, and what happens sometimes with that issue is you condemn yourself. You say, well, I must not be a Christian because I struggle here. Or I must not be a Christian because I have this growth point. And you're constantly condemning yourself. What we've done as a culture is we've taken those things and then we've redefined them as acceptable and good. Right? A couple weeks ago... We addressed the idea that we've moved from saying something is bad, then we started to tolerate it, then we celebrate it, then we demand it. That's where our culture has moved with so many issues that the Bible calls sin and maybe other things that used to be called, you know, out of the social norm or inappropriate or something like that. We've moved from, well, let's just tolerate it. It's there. Okay. It's not too bad. So then you kind of accept it and celebrate it. Isn't it wonderful that we have all this going on? And then we demand it, right? And we demand it. Well, within the spirit of thinking about today's message and in our own hearts and how we deal with ourselves as individuals before God, what we sometimes do is something very similar to what's going on in our culture. We identify something in our life as needing to change, but then we start to cut ourselves a little slack and say, well, it's okay if that remains a little bit. Well, I'm probably never going to get very good at it. I'm probably never going to stop. Well, it's just kind of who I am. And then we just kind of give our permission, self-permission for that, whatever that issue is that you have to have forefront of your mind, that you just kind of 
let it remain and say, this is just the way I'm going to be and everybody has to accept me and it's just going to be what it is. Somewhere in there, there's where we should live with Jesus. Somewhere between not condemning ourselves and not giving ourselves permission to sin and to remain in that condition. In this chapter, I want you to look at verses 19 through 21 for just a second. They're the heart of what we're going to talk about over the next few moments. Verse 19 of chapter 3 says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. See, I, whatever you're thinking about today, whatever is at the forefront of your mind, whatever you can't seem to kind of get victory in, and you're tempted to give yourself permission just to remain that way, I want you to think about your confidence in God. As you approach God, I want you to think about how you do that. Do you do so with confidence, or do you do so with, in a, in, with a mindset of, I don't really deserve God, I have this issue in my life, I don't deserve his love, I don't deserve his grace, but I'm going to kind of go sheepishly, I'm going to go kind of hope he doesn't strike me dead, you know, or do you go the other extreme where you just come rudely and disrespectfully before the Lord? Again, we want to be in the middle, and because I want to address this issue in this verse of whenever your heart or our heart condemns us. That word condemn is strong, isn't it? That word condemn is one where you would say, according to what's going on in my life, I am not a Christian. I am beyond salvation. I am condemned. I am sentenced to hell forever. I don't qualify. Okay? That's condemning yourself. But notice what John does with this. He says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now it's interesting that John would say, and he knows everything. So he takes the fact that he knows everything with you're condemning your heart. Now when you put that together and you think about that, you think, wait a minute, I'm condemning my heart myself, but God knows everything. That must mean, that must mean that there's something I'm missing. There's something that you're missing. That every time you condemn yourself for not being perfect and you're tempted to just give yourself permission to sin, you're forgetting something. You're missing some sort of information that you need to go to the Lord and say, God, I seem to be condemning myself over and over again for this. I know this isn't right. I know this can't remain in my life. I don't want to give myself permission to sin, but I also understand, Lord, that you love me and that you call me to repentance and that you want to do a work in my life. And that's where you should be instead of the self-condemning attitude of, I'm not even going to approach God because I don't deserve God. I don't deserve what he wants to do in my life. I don't deserve freedom from this struggle. In order to focus on that, let's back away now and look at the text entirely in its entirety of chapter 3. Before we do that, you have to understand that John's purpose in writing this little letter was to bring his readers into the same joy that the eyewitnesses had, OK? 
okay? So the eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus and the eyewitnesses to his death and then his resurrection, the eyewitnesses to the ones that experienced Jesus over a period of 40 days in his resurrected state, they had a certain joy. They were with Jesus. They saw him in his resurrected state and they were local and Jesus was there and they were with him. But as Christianity started to branch out and started to spread geographically, there became this kind of less than approach. This, well, we weren't there. We didn't see Jesus. We are not eyewitnesses. So because we're not eyewitnesses, we're less than. Okay? Because humans are always putting each other in categories. And these categories are always better than the next, right? I'm better than you, or they're better than me, or I'm the least, or I'm the best. We're always doing that to one another. And so what had happened was, these that didn't have the eyewitness experience with Jesus, weren't with him in flesh and blood, were seen kind of like, well, we, well we're just kind of over here, we, we get news secondhand. So John wants to write to them and say, I want you to have the same joy and the same experience as those that were eyewitnesses so he starts to portray to them the truth and the nature of Jesus about his identity and about his supremacy and about the fact that he is alive through the Holy Spirit and connecting all of them together so he wants them to experience this joy now part of experiencing Jesus is the ceasing of self-condemnation okay so if we're going to have the joy of being a Christian we need to have confidence as we approach God and quit this idea and this notion of self-condemnation so that's kind of the thing of the whole picture. Moving through, looking at verses 1 through 3, we start to discover this among many things. And of course, you're smart people. You know that I can't possibly teach in one message everything that's in this chapter, so we're not even going to try, and to that you applaud. But the first thing we come to understand among many in chapter 3 of verses 1 through 3 is that our motivation for purity is the love of God. Just think about that for a moment with whatever that issue is at the forefront of your mind that says, I can't seem to get over this, I can't stop doing this, or whatever that might be, I want you to switch your motivation. I want you to say, because God loves me, I'm going to ha have motivation to change. The fact of the matter is, God loves you. He already does. As you're in your state of rebellion, he loves you. As you're in your state of chaos, he loves you. As you're in this state of condemnation and you can't seem to stop or start or whatever your issue is, the reality is God's love for you is not conditioned upon your performance or your current state of affairs. Notice as he begins the chapter, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Stop right there for a moment, please. You right now are a child of God. What we're going to be, and when he's, what he's talking about in the time period is when Jesus comes back. When you and I, Jesus returns, you and I go to heaven. Summarizing a bunch of theology. <laughs> okay? You don't know what you're going to be like in heaven. Neither do I. And you're not there yet. In other words, you have not been perfected and neither have I. We are in the position right now of saved and justified and in the process of being sanctified. But none of you, including me, none of us have been glorified, right? And that's a lot of technical kind of stuff. 
but you deal with your justification as you become a Christian, and then you begin your sanctification work of the work of the Holy Spirit and your Christian maturity into the identity of Christ, and then guess what? You're in that process till you're dead, and then God glorifies you, but we don't know what that's going to be like, and John says, you know what you're like now, but you don't know what you're going to be like then, so calm down. So stop condemning yourself. You're not glorified yet, and neither am I. Jesus has not done that perfecting work in you and making you 100% perfect yet. You're on a growth trajectory. I pray, the Lord Jesus, that you're way better now than you were last year. I hope so. If not, don't condemn yourself, <laughs> but understand God loves you and use that motivation that God loves me, so I'm going to grow. God approves of me. He's giving me his grace. He's giving me his mercy, so I'm going to grow. He goes on to say, he says in verses 1 through 3, but now, excuse me, beloved, let me start over here, verse 2. Beloved, we are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. When are you going to be like Jesus? When he appears. Has he appeared yet? No. So are you like Jesus yet? No. Newsflash, you're not Jesus and neither am I. Hmm. So stop condemning yourself when you do not act exactly like Jesus. Now I know, I want, G I, I want to act like Jesus. That's my goal. That's my target. That's my role model. And such is yours. But you're not perfect yet. So the motivation for God. And everyone, verse 3, who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. So how are you purified? Through your hope. Through your hope that when Jesus comes back, he will glorify you. You're not glorified yet, so you live in hope. We only hope for things that we have not received yet, right? I hope that I eat dinner tonight. I don't hope that I ate breakfast. I ate breakfast today. I had a coffee cup of granola. It was wonderful. It was amazing. And whole milk, dadgummit. Not this two skim, whatever. I don't know what that. Put some whole milk in that stuff. And you're like, Pastor, hang on. It's not Monday. Hmm. So we hope. We have this hope that as I grow closer and closer to Jesus, when he returns, then I'll be made like him. But until then, I need to stop condemning myself. But yet, at the same time, not giving myself permission to sin, right? So as we move through a, a greater chunk of this text, we start to notice a second observation, that purity is experienced through the practice of righteousness exemplified by loving others. So he's saying as we're living in this hope, what should be our first step? Loving others. Let's go to the text, starting in verse 4, looking in your Bibles, we read this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Moreover, or excuse me, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, 
for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot continue or keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, in the reading of that text, you probably noticed that there was a, re- there was a reoccurring word several times. In the ESV um, translation, one, two, three, four, five, six times, in that passage of Scripture, John uses the word practice. Now, what you will do and I will do and then when we come into this state of self-condemnation, what we do is we forget that word practice. And we say, I've committed this sin. Oh, because I've committed this sin, I must not be a child of God. I'm a child of the devil. You forgot the word practice. The word practice here in this text defines the whole message. The word practice, if I can help you out with this, and no, I don't speak Greek, nor can I pronounce the words properly. <laughs> but the word poieho, I, if you're Greek, you could probably say that. I, I just butchered it. But it's the Greek word for to do or to make, right? But that little word is in what is called in the Greek language the present, i got to look at my notes again, the present active form. And I, I know, you try to read these books and figure all this stuff out, and my head spins around 360 degrees, okay? But it's in its present active form. So what that means is when you are making sin in its present and active form, it's really you saying, I know this is wrong, but I'm doing it anyway, and there's no end in sight. That's what that means. That's what John was saying when he used that word poieho in its present and active form. It's present now in my life, and it's going to continue to be active in my life and move forward. I'm not even going to try to stop. I know it's wrong, but I'm doing it anyway. If you have that mindset, I'm going to tell you right now that you are in dangerous ground. And I want to refer to one of the first, the first message in this series was this idea that when we talked about repentance and we talked about hearing the voice of God and we tried to differentiate between hearing shame and guilt. That was message number one in this series, that God will come to you and he will convict your heart of your guilt. And guilt is, yes, I did that, I'm guilty of that. And I admit that. Shame is not what the conviction of the Holy Spirit is. Shame means, yes, I did that, and I am not worthy of forgiveness. I am not worthy of love. I am not worthy of redemption. I'm not worthy of a second chance. Because shame devalues you as a human and causes you to step out of fellowship with other humans and out of fellowship with God. You hide and you withdraw in shame because there's no value there. So God doesn't shame you. The Holy Spirit, when he convicts you, doesn't shame you, but he does tell you you're guilty. (laughs) And if you no longer sense that guilt, you have become deaf to the Holy Spirit, and you are probably in a state of condemnation. You're probably not saved. If you could just do whatever you do, 
and live in sin and never in, and just say, well, I, I know it's not right. I know whoever believes in the Bible, they said that, but I, I'm doing it and I'm planning on continuing to do it. If you're in that state, I would request to you that you would go back and look at the reality that God loves you in that state and receive the love of God and ask God to move you into a state where you can hear his voice once again and to repent of your sin and move forward. Because again, we're trying to find that balance. I don't want to condemn myself. I don't want to shame myself. But I want to admit my guilt and commit to growth. Knowing that I won't be perfect until Jesus comes back. <laughs> a third observation moving through the text. Verses 11 through 15. Is that the actions of Cain display the practices of sin and unrighteousness. So, now that we've dealt with that idea of that the love of God motivates us, practicing sin is not what Christians do. Christians do not live in a state of, I know what's wrong and I'm going to continue to do it with no plans of stopping. Thank you very much. I doubt that anyone that has ever confessed to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior has that in their mind where they will simply look at God and say, it's wrong, I admit that it's wrong, but I'm not going to stop, I'm going to keep on doing it. That, John says, if, you, if that's you, you're not a Christian, and you need to realize God loves you and wants to save you and move you forward. So now this next piece, now John is going to give us an example of what it means to practice, okay? Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, all the way back in Genesis, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the devil, or excuse me, was of the evil one, devil, same, same one, and murdered his brother. For those of you that don't remember that account, early on in the book of Genesis, you had Adam and Eve, and then we have this story of two of their sons. Now, that story does not mean that those are the only children Adam and Eve had. In fact, it would be ridiculous to think that it was. These were probably two of, I'm just going to say, hundreds. They lived, Adam and Eve lived to be hundreds and hundreds of years old, okay? And go back and read about they, how people believe in a real Adam and a real Eve and how humanity spread. It's an amazing story. Don't have time for it today. But Cain and Abel, two of the countless numbers of children Adam and Eve had, are an example of what it means to practice sin. We know that Cain killed Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because Abel's sacrifice was accepted by the Lord and Cain's was not. And Cain grew envious and jealous and angry and killed his brother. Okay? So he goes through. Verse 12. Or verse, verse 12. We, sh we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love our brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that, the murderer has, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So in other words, John is writing to us in this state of, hey, I know that your heart is condemning you, but we can't live in a state of condemnation and shame, but we must be motivated by the love of God and move into a state of admitting our guilt, repenting of our sins, and the first step and the first action is to learn how to love each other. That's where we need to start. 
before we start to clean everything else up in our life, the first step is, as I move towards repentance, as I want to move in Christ-likeness, I must begin by loving others because sin started with self-love over loving others. And this is the example that we are given by John. Note in verse 13 that this is the second time in the passage where John states that the world hates those who follow him. I haven't really addressed that, but now I want to just for a moment. Because what he's doing is he's taking the Christian, he's taking the Christian, and he's describing the Christian in this way. Then he's saying the world, those outside of faith in Jesus, do in large part hate Christians. Why? Any number of reasons. The, number, the reason that was given here is at the root of all of the persecution that Christians suffer. Christians sacrifice before the Lord. Christians are acceptable before the Lord and others are not. Now, I want to be careful here because if you've been listening to my preaching over the last year or so, two years, through the pandemic and through the political kind of stuff that you've been listening I don't know, maybe you, if you have picked up on this, I haven't stated it out loud, but what I've been trying to do for the last two years is to speak towards foundational issues without addressing specific issues, right? So up until today, you, you have not heard me talk about anything going on in the realm of human sexuality in our culture, right, about gender issues, same-sex issues. I haven't addressed those specific issues. I've addressed foundational issues. For example, tolerate, celebrate, demand. Follow it? You're thinking people. Several several decades ago, tolerate. Okay, now we just accept. Now we're going to celebrate. Now if you don't, you hate. Do you see how that's gone? So I addressed that issue. We've seen that in the realm of same-sex relationships. The homosexual community has gone, followed that path. That, fo- that path has been followed many, many times with a lot of different things. Now what you're seeing is this whole idea, this word hate, right? This word hate is all over the place. And if you disagree with someone, you're called someone that hates. We just disagree. How did we get from disagree to hate all of a sudden? Well, there's something going on in many, many places of our culture. This is an observation of mine. I could be wrong. I could change my mind five minutes from now. But I think that there's something going on as non-Christians look at Christians. As non-Christians look at Christians and they see us living our Christian life, there's something I don't even think they would be able to identify but there's something in them that knows that they're not in a good state. And they want Christians to approve of them, though they're not one. Huh. I often wonder why people that believe differently than me want my approval. Why would you care if I approved of your lifestyle or not? Why does the church constantly have to not have to, that's the wrong, wrong way to put it. Why is the church constantly expected to shift away from scriptural mandates to cultural mandates? 
Why would the larger culture care what the church thinks or believes? Why is a non-Christian always seeking the approval of a Christian? I think a lot of it has to do with this, which it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Well, Cain was angry enough to kill his brother because his efforts towards God were rejected by God because it was not his best, and Abel's was accepted by God. And when a non-believer sees a believer getting accepted by God when they're not, that creates anger, hate, pain. And then in our culture today, I believe that it's in this state where now we have people refusing to repent of sin, yet asking the church, and in, in some places demanding that the church come their way, and we simply will not. We will simply stay with the scriptures as the authoritative word of God, and we are not shaped by cultural mandates or social expectations. We are shaped by scripture, yet our approval is still constantly sought. I think it's because they really know somewhere in their soul that they need to repent and come to Jesus too. Just a thought. Take me out for coffee. As I always say, you pay, I pray. Show me how I'm wrong. Perhaps I am. Moving a little further into the text, we discover that the actions of Jesus display purity and love. So we have Cain on one side, we have Jesus on the other. It's verses 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and deed. Excuse me. <laughs> let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So that, that's, our, that's the way that Christians are supposed to love. We're supposed to love by service, and we're supposed to stick to the truth. That's how we love. That's how we'll continue to love. And that's the scriptural mandate as exampled by Jesus. Moving further to draw this to a conclusion in a few moments. I'll be almost done. <laughs> in verses 19 through 24, we discover this. Many that follow the example of Jesus in their pursuit of purity become victims of their own heart and need to regain their confidence before God. This is the biggest point. If you excuse everything else I've said this morning, I really want you to get this point. Even if you took a picture of the screen. And you just kind of thought that through this week. Many who follow the example of Jesus in their pursuit of purity. That's you. Why else would you be here this morning? But you become a victim of your own heart. And you need to regain your confidence before God. Whatever you've done does not disqualify you from the love of God. And may that motivate you to change and not give yourself the excuse to sin, but to come to God with confidence. Notice the text. We'll read it again. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. What is the this there? By this we shall know, by our loving one another. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name 
of his son Jesus and love one another. There it is. It's all summed up right there. And I know you're not perfect. I know that. So the first steps are looking and saying, okay, I do believe in the authority. That's what name means. I believe in the authority of Jesus. He's my authority in all things. He's my example in all things. He's my leader in all things. I'm directing my life and orientating myself towards Jesus. And then I'm going to do my best to love each other. And we're all in this state where God is working in our lives, helping us to follow the authority of Jesus and helping us love one another. And we're never condemning ourselves and we're never giving ourselves permission to sin, but we're always motivated by God's love in order to grow in Christ-likeness and our ability to love one another. Because even after nearly 32 years, I don't love Susan perfectly. I hope I do it better now than I did 31 years, 30-something years ago. I hope I'm getting better, but I'm not perfect. But we can't condemn ourselves for our lack of perfection, but we need to keep growing. So finally, the, the um, challenge is this. When your heart condemns you, refuse to call bad good, but remind yourself that God loves you and has made a way to repent. Whatever's at the forefront of your mind that I asked you to think about at the beginning of the sermon, there's a pathway for you to get, get through that. There's a pathway of repentance for that. And then we as a church, when our hearts, when, when your heart condemns you, refuse, excuse me, I read that backwards. Go to the next one, Wes. As we accept all, we do. We accept all anyone regardless of who they are what they are how they're living they're welcome to be here they're welcome to be anywhere any of you are they can come bas- play basketball on wednesdays they can come play pickleball on thursdays they can come to church they can eat food they can go to your small groups they could go to vbs <laughs> but we're not going to call bad good we refuse. We will continue to look to the scriptures and allow that to define right, wrong, good, bad, or indifferent to us. So as we accept all who desire to be a part of our church community, we must love them by the example of Jesus. So when you start talking, well, Christians are supposed to love. Well, what does that look like? It looks like Jesus. How did Jesus love people? Go to the Gospels and read and find out. Sometimes Jesus loved people by going to their house when no one else would. Zacchaeus. (laughs) Sometimes Jesus loved people, like when he picked the prostitute that was supposed to get stoned by her accusers. Sometimes as Jesus picked her up and said to her, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. He didn't say to the prostitute, your sins are forgiven, keep on doing what you're doing. Prostitution is just how you were born. It's just what you do. So I love you. Keep on. No. Neither did he say, when you stop that, then I'll love you. (laughs) He said, I love you. Now let's get going and stop this nonsense. That's how Jesus loved. So I challenge you to do the same. 